Hi, I'm Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. Our mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. Uh, today is the fourth episode of Lioness, The Origin Story. This is our special eight-part podcast uh, where we are talking with Lioness vets and Marines uh, about the Lioness program, the origins of that into the vets, uh, as well as responding to Taylor Sheridan's show, Special Ops Lioness, which has just aired its episode four this past Sunday. Uh, joining me, uh, as always, is filmmaker and writer Daria Summers. Daria, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Sean. Thank you so much for that introduction. And I'm actually thrilled because this is the first time <clears throat> we have had um, two Marines on. And I'm very excited to welcome uh, Colonel Maria M.J. Pallada. She grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and joined the Marine Corps upon graduation from the United States Naval Academy in 1994. She was deployed twice to Operation Iraqi Freedom, once in 2005 as the Regimental Operations Officer, and again in 2006 as the Transportation Support Company Commanding Officer with Combat Logistics Regiment 15. During both tours, she was responsible for overseeing the execution of supply convoys to camps throughout El Anbar province, including Fallujah, Ramadi, and Al-Assad. Colonel Pallada holds a master's degree in English and is currently the director of the United States Naval Academy Center for Experiential Leadership Development, and she teaches leadership and ethics to midshipmen. Her awards include the Bronze Star and the Navy Commendation Medal, third award, and I can't tell you, MJ, how delighted we are that you could join us today. Also joining us is retired United States Marine Corps Colonel Maria Marte, who was born and raised in New York City. Yay, that's where I'm from. Yay. In 1990, after receiving a BA in electrical engineering technology from DeVry, she enlisted in the Marine Corps. In 1995, she became the first female Marine Corps officer assigned as a combat engineer. As a captain, she deployed to Afghanistan in 2003 in support of Operation Enduring Freedom with the 22nd Marine Expeditionary Unit. And beginning in 2004, she served as a female searcher with the Battalion Landing Team 16. She was subsequently promoted to major and deployed to Iraq from 2005 to 2006. In 2015, she was selected to the rank of Colonel and served as a fleet Marine officer at the 7th Fleet in Yokosuka, Japan. And in 2018, after 28 years of service, she retired as a full Colonel. Among her many awards are the Legion of Merit, the Bronze Star, the Defense Meritorious Service Medal, the Meritorious Service Medal, and although there are many others, the combat action ribbon. So welcome to you both. We're so thrilled that you're here. And um, I just wanted to reiterate uh, that the goal of this podcast really is to offer a historical counter uh, to the Taylor Sheridan's very fictional special ops uh, television show. And to that end, we wanna jump right in and I know, um, Maria, that in uh, 2005, you were a searcher in Afghanistan and with um, your unit. And I was wondering if you could sort of set the scene and tell us how that began. I'd love to. Um, actually, it was 2004. Maybe I put the information incorrectly, but it was 2004 with Tutu Mew. 
Okay, great. No, I think actually that was my mistake, but go ahead. So uh, initially I went, um, I got assigned as an augment to Tutumu to, to become a LFOC watch officer. So it's the landing force operations center where uh, you get to do operations and um, watch and provide information back to the command as to what's going on with the units as they deploy and do operations. Um, prior to us or entering into Afghanistan and flying out and getting off the ships, um, the MU commander had um, received information pertaining to having the opportunity of conducting operations on how they were gonna change things up with having women assigned to the battalion landing team to maybe ease some of the pressures as they were going in to different villages and maybe it would help with some of um, the pressure of people being antagonistic towards the, the units coming into their villages, especially dealing with the women. So at that point, the command decided that uh, once we got into Afghanistan, they decided that they were gonna take women in and uh, partake into divvying them off to the companies. So at some point, the commander, uh, Colonel Keenan, decided that he would assign or, or take volunteer women to get assigned and divvying them up between the companies prior to them deploying into the villages for the operations that they had. So I volunteered uh, to be part of that, uh, one of the women to partake into this mission that was going to come up. There were a total of 12 females that volunteered. It was myself as a captain and then there was one female first lieutenant. She was the adjutant to the MU, and she volunteered. We had an RP, which is a religious person, uh, female that volunteered, and a female corpsman. The rest were junior um, enlisted Marines that also volunteered from the logistics side to uh, participate as the 12 females to go in. This is prior to the Marine Corps ever conducting something like this before. So it was prior, more than likely before the FET, or the Lioness program. This was um, some of the after actions uh, we provided after uh, the event uh, to higher headquarters of what could have improved with operations um, had we done some planning prior to this. So this is how we got assigned. Then they split us up into two different groups. Six females went with one company and six females went with another company. So I believe I was with um, Captain Gawker, Alpha Company, and the other lieutenant, she went with uh, Charlie Company, uh, Captain Merida. This is what I find so fascinating um, and, and what I really appreciate about you coming to tell us your individual uh, story here and accounting of what happened. Um, because if you, you broke up into two teams of six females each, and then were you both sent to different villages? Or was this, were you just both circulating in the same village? So we were both sent to different villages. Okay, and now prior to arriving in Afghanistan, was this uh, anything that you had been, anyone had thought about or mentioned, or was it more of a revelation to the command once you got on the ground that, hey, we might need women? This was more of a revelation to the Marine Corps. And it came about because uh, once we uh, started establishing um, are bringing all the personnel from the MU into uh, Kandahar, 
Uh, this was something that was discussed that the army was um, trying and started uh, attempting to do with their units. And so uh, Colonel Keenan said that, and said he wanted to uh, try this as well, that it would help with um, the units that go in to the villages and seeing that they had women and that we would respect the women as we went into the villages um, and having the people be a little bit more receptive to us coming in. Well, because I noticed in um, one article, the uh, I guess there was an embedded reporter, but they made a point of describing you always had upon entering uh, wherever the women, Afghan women were of always taking off your helmets and letting your hair down. Uh, that's interesting. Um, that is something I just did automatically. Um, I was put into a one of their homes at one time and the interpreter sat on the outside of the door because he couldn't come in. And there was at least 10 females in that room. And at first they were a little bit um, scared um, until I took my helmet off. And as soon as I took my helmet off, they all came to touch me. And it was a little bit shocking of like, I don't know whether they wanted to know I was real. And at that point we always had, um, I always kept my, uh, my, I had a ponytail, but I had braids, like three braids within the ponytail and that they thought that I had the long hair and, and, and wanted to touch my hair and to touch, touch my face to actually verify that I was a woman. That's so, I mean, the imagery uh, that you've just described is just um, so fantastic. And now did that action sort of diffuse tension? It immediately diffused tension. And prior to me being put into a room with the women, um, we sat down with the village elder and we had tea. And it, that's the first time I took my helmet off and the men were like, they offered me the tea and they were a lot more respectful um, as they saw me. I did sit next to the commander. I didn't sit next to them, um, but that they saw this and he explained that um, how I would, be with the women and that you know we would separate and the men would not touch any of the women and he would explain how they would conduct the search. Well that must have made a big difference in terms of your acceptance. I, I believe it did. Um, the reason for the interpreter was so that when the women saw me and they put me in the room and they had questions the interpreter could ex explain to me what they were asking Right. Um, and so all of them were asking, you know, what, what was my age? Um, a lot of them were asking me, you know, why, why was I there? But a majority, you know, and why I was there, it was explained that we're here to help and kind of figure out what they needed to assist them. Um, and a lot of the women asked for wells. And I was like, why would you ask for a well? Like, so in understanding right. that the reason for the well was that was the only opportunity the woman can congregate somewhere and talk to each other. So if they weren't from the same family, they were isolated. But if they had to go to the well to get water, they could congregate and talk to each other. Was your wow. situation, did you happen to find that you, uh, you were able to gain special intel from women? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There was one um, village that we went to uh, where they put all the women into this one uh, courtyard of a house and um, there was an older woman there and she was very a uh, strong woman 
and none of the other ladies wanted to do anything because she was kind of yelling at them and being very abusive towards them. The moment I took her and separated her from everybody, they were a little bit surprised. But at that point, I understood that they started telling me was that that lady was feeding the Afghan militia force and how they were um, providing them food in these barrels and that how she was forcing all these ladies to provide food on a daily basis to bring to her to take to the Afghan militia force. So that was that was critical intel right there. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think just allowing them to talk and not dominating the conversation, um, but also making them feel comfortable, I think was an ideal and very uh, strategic uh, position to take that uh, Colonel Keenan uh, and the BLT-16 commander uh, decided to employ. So how many of these missions did you go on, Maria? So I actually was initially it was going to be just a couple of days. So I only packed for a couple of days. Um, so the first time I went with them, I was out for two weeks. So whatever mission and movement we did, I was with them. I slept out on the ground with them. I had watch with them. Um, and it wasn't until two weeks we came back. Um, and then they had a big movement where they were going to have another mission. And um, after I came back and we had a refit, you know, and I able to repack my bags um, and uh, actually flew out for the second mission. And I, I want to say we were out for another couple of weeks um, doing some additional missions as well. So essentially, and this is where it all gets good, this was, um, this was kind of a boots on the ground. They, you're, the, the commanders needed to do this because they saw it as important to accomplishing the mission. Um, and they, they were sending out female Marines um, with combat troops, right? Yes. Outside the wire for yes. two weeks. <clears throat> yeah, so it's kind of you're embedded just like you would for any special other MOSs that were with the BLT. Um, so you're embedded and you're part of the unit. Uh, what would have been ideal prior to this is had they planned it, you know, everybody would understand their role, how they fit in, things of how to operate and provide information back to the commander and back to higher headquarters, um, and also how to respond to um, searching women, how to isolate the women, um, and certain necessities that women need as well as they deploy to isolated locations uh, to be ready to pack. And I do have a, a funny story about the first time we went out because initially I thought we were told it was maybe three or four days. And so I did not pack, you know, necessity items because I'm, I was assuming I was going to come back um, faster than uh, later. So uh, a couple of the females did not pack their feminine items. So I had to have one day tell one of the captains, Captain Gawker, a, um, we need uh, some feminine items. And he's like, well, why didn't you pack that? And I'm like, um, I'm sorry, last time I checked, you know, I didn't realize we we're gonna be out here for two weeks. Why would I pack that? Um, so he's like, okay, great, I'll call it in. So we called it in and he's like, he, he first requested um, like water, the MREs that we needed, how many he needed based on the personnel he had, uh, other supplies that he needed. And then he left the request of like, and we need some feminine items. And the, the, the other individual on the other end said, basically say again, your last. 
and he says you heard me we need feminine items he's like wait one and he's this is the first time they probably had to deal with some of that of like trying to realize that you know this is a necessity you know not just toilet paper or something like that so the individual came back and said okay we'll send something out on the next um resupply so we got the next resupply and they sent me a big box of feminine items and so the females that were with me all six of us has like okay pick whichever you know however much you need take the brown paper bags that way you can have something to put it in and then the rest the the corpsman came and he grabbed additional items like you know because tampons have great you know like and some of the stuff that was in there like uh, the the cotex of that cotton for in case someone gets injured it absorbs better you know it's a lot better item to have and so he collected a couple of things that were in there and then the rest was just left over. And so I told him that, you know, you can take these to the villages and we can provide some away, you know, to those that never had something like this. Um, but it was kind of a shocking. He goes, you, you're not going to take any more. I was like, I don't need a big box, <laughs> you know, for, you know, a cycle, not really understanding what this big box, how many people it could really supply. So it was just interesting, the, 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 the automatic reaction of like, and the shock initially of having to try and provide something like this to females. Well, clearly not a, not, not, they were not operating with a crystal clear understanding of how that biology works. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was very comical and hearing the other people on the end of the shock, um, they also were kind of laughing about it like, oh crap, like, what do we do with this? So I think everybody took it well in stride of like, okay, we got to get this, but all right, what do we do next? You did it. Yes, they done. did. Yep, yep, yep. And initially, when I talked to the females, because some of them were embarrassed to use the bathroom, because, you know, there's no private space. Um, so when we were in vehicles, I was like, stop trying to find the perfect spot to go to the bathroom. Because one of the young ladies, she was holding it for a long time. I was like, you're going to get an infection if you hold this too long, you know, of they're going to see your butt, just go use the bathroom just like them, and pop your pants back up. I think uh, the Marine Corps came back out with, um, after this, came out with some special items that you could put in without dropping your pants all the way down to go ahead and use the bathroom. Just to, you know, take, you know, to urinate and stuff like that. That's completely and totally fascinating. And so this leads me to my next question. And, um, and then I'd also be interested, uh, maybe MJ could have uh, some larger view or on this as well. Um, and I'm asking this because in, in the film uh, that I made, uh, Lioness, which talks about the army, uh, the team Lioness soldiers in the army in Ramadi who were there in 2003 and 2004, they were doing these, this kind, same kind of program starting in the fall of 2003. And, um, and so it was very much uh, exactly, you know, very parallel to what you were describing. They sent uh, two army women out at a time with an infantry unit at first. Um, but at one point, uh, by the spring of 2004, when things started to heat up in Ramadi and the army women were assigned to the two four Marines, because they needed um, female searchers. Uh, there was a lot of concern about 
the degree to which this was a violation of the combat exclusion policy for women. And I know that the colonel at the time, the army colonel sort of got, General Mattis called them up and was like, what's going on? And so I'm wondering now with the Marines in Afghanistan, if there was any nervousness about the degree to which we're sending women outside the wire, not that they shouldn't be or anything like that. It was part of getting the mission done, but just that it was a violation of the combat exclusion policy. Well, that would explain, and I'll let MJ go after is so she could give you a bigger picture. Um, we did have one instance where we were uh, up like at 3 a.m. in the morning so we could go to the next village. And at this point, uh, the first sergeant came up to me and said, um, I'm going to have you and the, the other women here wait with the other, uh, with just a, a group of other people before we move forward uh, with you guys, uh, because he was concerned that we might get injured as we were clear clearing the village. And I was like, I don't understand. We are here to go in conjunction with you so we could separate the women as you continue forward to clear the village. Um, he's like, no, we're not, we're not bringing you in. Um, however, after we got done with that village, the, the BLT commander uh, was wondering where we were at um, to assist uh, with the, the clearance. And uh, the first sergeant explained that he separated us based on what was happening with higher headquarters. And he's like, I, he told him that that was not his decision to make, that they were willing to overlook that based on the needs of the operation and that they were dealing with that at the higher headquarters level. I don't, and MJ may have more on what was going on with higher headquarters. Sure. Um, so I was there in 05 and 06. And yes, Daria, you're correct. We were, you know, every unit was really undermanned. We needed everybody we could get. Different commanders interpreted it different ways. We often say, like, do you interpret it by the letter of the law or the spirit of the law? And, you know, we still had don't ask, don't tell in place at that time. And yet, we knew we had gay and lesbian service members. And, you know, my, my commander in 05 was like, look, we need everybody. We were so shorthanded. We were pulling from the reserves. We were pulling everyone from worldwide, part of the Marine Corps and the Marine Corps Reserve. When I was a company commander in 06, for example, I had Marines from 10 different units, you know, every major Marine expeditionary force, all the reserves, and we pretty much broke the reserves. That's how desperate we were for the revolving door that was Iraq during those years. So it became a just a simple matter of necessity, very similar to World War II. And other times we've had to use, uh, you know, use women based on the needs of the core. And then gender just becomes, or sexual orientation becomes less of a thing. Like, hey, can they do the job? If they can do the job, we need them. We need everybody. But different commanders interpreted it differently. So yeah, some like Maria is saying, some command said, well, no, we can't have women Marines in the front. And that means we were doing convoys, right? So that means some of the convoys, they said, well, if the, is that a combat convoy? There's a woman commander of that military police unit. Well, she can't go out, but her Marines can. And that was just really bizarre because she's a commander. Her Marines can go out, but she can't. She commands them. But then other parts, you know, over Fallujah or different parts of El Ambar, they're like, no, we need everybody. They can all go out. Thankfully, my commanders 
when, you know, when I was in command that second year, they're like, yeah, MJ's qualified. Her Marines are good to go send them. And so we went up to Ramadi to help with the combat ups up there and the insertion of the Iraqi army. And they didn't care. They're like, we just need to get the job done. So those years was, was a time of, of transition and flux. Yes, technically we were breaking the policy, but it all became, you know, water under the bridge when we realized, Hey, there's one, there's very, it's not clear what the front line is in an insurgency. The front line is everywhere. The biggest threat was IEDs, the improvised explosive devices. We were as susceptible to those as anybody. So in its essence, we all were on the front line. Then it becomes, it just becomes a moot point in so many ways. Like, hey, do you act professional? Do you do the job? Can you maintain the fitness, the, the standards of, of service? Do you know your job? Do you take care of your Marines? Yes, go out and do it. And that's eventually what happened. That eventually became the norm, which is the norm now. So sometimes it takes wars and, and significant moments in history to say, hey, this rule is a little bit outdated. Absolutely. And I, and as I hear you speak and um, MJ, and also in the context of Maria's story and what I know about the Army Lioness uh, units that were operating in Ramadi in 2003-2004, when I look back, I feel like that this, um, you know, the theater of Iraq and Afghanistan and what was happening there was literally just going to break the combat exclusion policy in retrospect. You could see, looking back, you could see, well, that, I mean, almost as, as, as someone studying history, you would look back and say, yeah, that was not going to survive because there was just such a disconnect between what the politicians in Washington thought should be going on and what it actually was boots on the ground in theater. And still it took until 2013 for it to, to end, but it did seem ridiculous uh, because I'm just, I can't even believe that you were saying um, that you, as a as a commander, a female Marine, oh, she couldn't go out, but her Marine, the Marines under her could. That was um, that was one of the military police units. You know, Marine Corps is still only eight percent women. So in mine and Marie's, Maria's career, it went from seven percent to eight percent women. So we're still much bigger of a minority than the other services, which are all pretty much over 20% now, 20% women. Um, she was the commander and all her Marines uh, were men. And so we were doing, it was just really trying to parse out, like, okay, is that mission a combat mission? Well, is that mission more of a resupply logistics mission? Well, hey, those are trucks going on the same roads where they're planting the same IEDs. Does it really matter what the mission is? They have to go on those roads and get stuff done, whether they're going to go into an ambush or whether they're delivering uh, ammo or MREs or mail, they're still going on the same road. So some commanders did try to parse it out, I think, trying to follow, again, the letter of the law. And luckily, that kind of became a minority as time went on to realize, okay, you're really trying to split a hair that it just it really doesn't matter. It's a moot point. I'd also like to correct um, the 2013. So 2013 was when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed. The full integration of women across the military occurred in 2015. Right, but I think, um, and I'll check, I think 
the, the full integration occurred in 2015, but I think they dropped the combat exclusion policy in 2013. I'd have to check yeah. on that. that. That You may be correct. For me, like those two dates were very big in my memory. Right. But I do remember that I, uh, the full integration act, it was like, it was, it was like, it was a two-parter. <laughs> um, like, you know, they had to drop the exclusion policy, but then they had to figure out almost like, now what? But I'm very um, also curious uh, when, um, well, first of all, Maria, it, it seems to me as I'm listening to you, um, because I, I did film in, uh, I was at Camp Lejeune and filmed uh, with the Marine, uh, Marine Lioness uh, program and, and was, and I, I got, we did a small uh, sort of like a DVD extra where, um, you know, I have the Marines on saying and the, and the Marine who ran it saying that they formed the uh, Marine Lioness program in 2005. And um, so it just reminds me that you were, you were doing it before the Marines had even formed the program. I, correct. I believe that the program was started uh, because of what we accomplished while we were at Tutu Mew. Uh, one of the after action reports that, uh, that I even filled out um, was that if they're gonna use us as searchers, um, first of all, we should be given the appropriate equipment. Second of all, we should be training with the unit that we're gonna deploy with, meaning that even though I was uh, an LFOC watch officer, if you're gonna assign me to the, uh, to the infantry unit, um, just like embed me in there, that I should understand how I will work with them, who am I gonna report to, how I'm gonna operate with them and who's gonna give me the orders to conduct whatever missions need to be done based on what the commander needs me to do. And then how did that? How do I get employed within that unit? When you returned for both of you, um, did was there any, in terms of getting whatever recognition or help or, uh, having it go on your record was there any uh resistance or did did you have to explain because i know that when i spoke with some of the women who served in the team lioness program in the army in 2003 2004 when they came back because they had been in some of the firefights in ramadi they but they had gone over as uh sort of office clerks or mechanics they they just literally found that nobody believed them. MJ, you want to go first, or you want me to go? I so I did not have that mission. But, you know, I was doing uh, convoys and resupply and logistics um, in and around El Ambar, so it was nothing was an issue of my service. No. So uh, for me, um, I actually didn't realize a lot of people knew that I was a female searcher. Um, but I did have the combat action ribbon because there were a couple of places where we did end up in some combat fights where I was involved in, um, where it, it was obvious that I was part of that. Um, I mean, even one point where uh, we got, and, and I'll give you another story. Um, MJ knows I like to give stories. <laughs> um, but one where we were in the vehicles and we're going to the next village as we're driving to go to this next village, 
uh, we start getting fire at, at, with the Humvee that I was in. So we herringboned off, you know, everybody's going left and right. And then we're all coming out the back of the Humvee and then shooting in the direction we think the fire is coming from. However, we ended up on, on, on the driver's side of, of the vehicle and we were still getting fire from that direction. So we go to the other side of the vehicle and then we're still getting fire from that direction. So basically we're, we were in a kill box. So at this point, everybody's like, jump back in, jump back in. So the vehicle can move from the spot that we were getting shot at from. And so then we rolled forward um, and ended up with operations of the S3 where his vehicle was at. And the Marines ended up coming out and then start chasing wherever the, 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 the people that were shooting at us uh, started moving in that direction. At that point, uh, it was Captain Christmas. He was the OPSO. And he, uh, he had told me, hey, call in the nine line. Uh, so we're calling in the nine line at that point. And I think it was a shock for the people that were back in operations center that they heard a woman on the radio calling in the nine line that we had a tick, you know, troops in contact. Um, so it wasn't a question of that. I think it was more, even when I went back, I never, maybe my presence or whatever, but I don't think we ever had an issue of like operationally that they understood that I had been with the unit. And I never thought it was something to discuss anyway. I just thought it was another job that I had to do within the Marine Corps and do my part as a Marine, uh, as embedded within the unit. I never said that I was infantry. I've always said I, I participated with the infantry. Um, I was there as an, as, as an extra additive of something that they needed to do their job. So Maria, I have a question for you. Um, do you think the fact that it was taken in a very straightforward way was the fact of your rank and that you were an officer? Uh, I think it might be um, also because I was a combat engineer. So I dealt with explosive and, you know, and that kind of field in itself was a very isolated for females to be in in the first place. And I was a very aggressive woman anyway. So it was never a question as to what I did and my capability. Uh, maybe some of the other uh, individuals that were in those, um, that did participate may have had some issues, um, but I never had an issue of like questioning of what I've done in the Marine Corps and um, you know, looking at where, whether I participated. Someone did ask me, and I was like, yeah, I was part of the uh, females that went in to do searchers. And I never said I was part of the FET because the FET wasn't established yet in the Marine Corps. So I would say, no, I did female searching. And someone said, well, were you with the FET? And I'm like, no, because that was established afterwards. And they were a lot more prepared uh, than we were when we went in uh, to participate in operations. And I'm, I'm grateful that they created that because um, it, it really does help a lot of these women that were participating in that to be better, uh, uh, better utilized and uh, could provide more information and within the employment that they were doing. Well, I feel like you were um, sort of uh, the advance of of all all of the Marine Lioness program and the FETs. You were doing it before, you know, there was any recognition that there should be a special training. I mean, you you seem that you were well prepared for it on the one hand, um, but um, how did the women who worked uh, and served underneath you on these missions do? Um, that's interesting. <laughs> uh, we did have um, two issues. And uh, the first one, I'll give you a, another little story. Um, and I shouldn't, uh, poor Bruteris, she was uh, the corpsman. I love her. She volunteered all the time. Um, 
to, to be part of uh, any mission that went out to do any extra security uh, surveillance and stuff like that. Um, however, one time we were in, in the very beginning, uh, we were in the Humvee. We went back to what within like a week and a half, we went back to get supplies or something. And we were able and fortunate enough to get some food. Uh, some of the Marines collected some of the muffins they had and they stacked it in the middle of the back of the Humvee. Within a day or so afterwards, um, one of the Marines asked her if she wanted a, um, a, uh, a muffin. And she's like, oh, absolutely. She took a muffin, but then she helped herself to a second muffin. Then she went for a third muffin. And then the third muffin, she only ate the top of the muffin and then offered the bottom muffin to the other Marines that were in the back of the Humvee. And at this point, the guy <laughs> was like, oh, I don't rate the top of the muffin, kind of like that skit from Seinfeld. <laughs> I'm not good enough for the top of the muffin. Um, so they're like, she was going to throw it out and they're like, oh no, you need to eat that. You took that muffin, you will eat it. And so she asked me if I wanted it. I'm like, I'm not eating no muffin. And all the guys like, no, you need to eat it. But at this point, I let them harass her because the, first of all, she shouldn't have had more than one muffin. Um, and, and it was a great lesson learned for her. You know, you're going to be part of the team, understand your surrounding, understand what's going around you. Um, so at this point, I, yeah, I mean, they, they harassed her long enough. And then I told her, okay, give me the muffin. And then I took the muffin and I threw it out. And the, all, the, all the Marines looked at me, ma'am. And I'm like, shut up. And that was the end of the conversation. But I did talk to her afterwards. I told her, you know, the expectation is you're part of the team. You understand that we're not going to have all these muffins. You know, it's going to deplete within a certain amount of time that we're out here. They offered you one muffin. You shouldn't have gone beyond one muffin. Um, and it's more symbology, you know, you're part of the team, understand the impacts of the future, not just of what's going on right now. Um, we had another situation where the Afghan militia force that was with us was getting too close to some of the women. And then they, they trailed one of the women and they were following her because they wanted to touch her. And she, I was in a, um, in a five ton and we're emptying it because we got resupplying. I'm taking, I'm helping, you know, I'm part of the troops, you know, so I'm, I'm taking water out. We're taking, emptying it out. And uh, she's running up to, to, you know, she's calling my name and I'm like, what? And then I see all these men behind her. And as soon as the men saw me, <laughs> I was like, of course I, I, you know, I was like, go away. And then I was like, what the hell are you doing? Like, Stop trying to talk to them and get involved where you're trying to understand them. They don't understand that. So don't do that. But because I never talked to them, they saw me as an elder woman and they were all scared and ran off. Um, but it was interesting that she put herself in that position. Another situation that ended up, I think, with Bravo Company, one of the females or the lieutenant that was with them, I, I guess the RP didn't want to stand watch. And she's like, oh, we don't stand watch. So when I ended up with that company, um, I had told them, no, we, we will stand watch. We're out here. There is no, because I'm on RP, I don't stand watch. We will all stand watch. So that was one of the things that um, I had to explain to them. Don't, don't let them, these junior personnel talk to you in such a way. They're embedded. They also have a responsibility for the security. You know, not, not their MOS. They're not participating in the MOS. They're doing a different service now. So they have to participate in that security. That kind of changed the dynamics of understanding, like how to employ us and don't accept. You know, like they had we done training beforehand, everybody would have known the expectation of what we should be doing when we're out there. Oh, that wow, those are some, those are like those kind of stories that offer the small details that really reveal, um, you know, that this was a new situation that, you know, 
the uh, female uh, Marines uh, being embedded with the soldiers and the Afghan soldiers as well. You know, you just, everyone had to recalibrate accordingly. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, one which is hilarious uh, because it involves the first sergeant. My, my cycle finally hit and um, we had just gone through this one village and uh, we were trying to marry up everybody back up because one of our, our vehicles, uh, one of the Humvees got attacked and they were isolated and one of the Marines were shot. Um, and so all of us hauled ass and we had to jump into the vehicles after the orchards and leave your pack. I don't know where my pack was. I ended up in a different vehicle and we all ran, you know, all the vehicles ran down there to kind of help that one isolated vehicle uh, for the four service members that were in there. Uh, but finally, when we got there and we were able to push back, they ended up calling in fire that day um, on the mountaintop of where we were getting uh, the fire from. Um, that night, my cycle came in. The next morning, I'm trying to figure out, okay, where do I go to put, you know, my 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 tampon in? And uh, interestingly enough, all the Afghan militia force is laying out all over the area, and I'm like, oh my god, where I can't even hide behind a rock. So I find a Humvee, but first. The first sergeant's like, hey, ma'am, you need to go in this Humvee, this high back Humvee. I'm like, okay, okay, give me a minute. He's like, ma'am, you need to go in there. I was like, okay. So I find this Humvee where uh, one of the, the recon group is in. And um, I said, hey, can I use the back of your Humvee real quick? And he's like, ma'am, what do you need it for? I was like, do you really want to know? He's like, no. I was like, I'm just going to be five minutes. So I had my ISO mat. I go back of the Humvee. I'm getting ready to set up. And the first sergeant opens the back of the Humvee, the high back. He's like, ma'am, I told you. I was like, I told you to give me an effing minute. I just need a minute. He's like, what are you doing? What do you think I'm doing? And so I have the, the tampon up and he's like, just plain turned white, like, forget it. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> but having his face is priceless. Afterwards, I bumped into him a couple months later. He's like, ma'am, I had to tell my wife that story just because I was so dumbfounded after that. I didn't even know what to do. I was like, I told you, just give me five minutes. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> That's, that's amazing, but, you know, actually, without, um, uh, you know, both sort of genders being prepared for the situation, you can imagine how that would happen. I mean, it yeah. probably, you, know, you were just, it was all so new, you were just figuring it out as you went along, and nobody was really prepared for it. Um, yeah. MJ, I wanted to, um, before we start to wrap unless you wanted to say something else. Um, I wanted to ask you, because uh, I'm, I'm still very curious about, so cause I know that the combat exclusion policy, I just checked again, it was sort of dropped officially in, uh, in early 2013. And I was just wondering what your view was between that and the 2015, the combat, you know, integration um, of the services. Um, what what that time was like? You mean between 2013 and 2015? Right. I mean, I think prior to 2013, um, there was. I mean, there, no one was surprised in 2013 when that when the policy was dropped, right? Or could you give me some color on how that was well, experienced? 
I think what happened in Iraq, like just like what Maria is talking about, like we were doing all those jobs based on necessity and based on doing well at those jobs. The same is true for gay service members. So we needed we needed everybody. Um, It was just a matter of waiting for the policy to catch up to what we were actually doing. And it finally did. Um, For me, 2013, in fact, what I remember about 2013, I was, you know, I became a reserve by then. I was working in the Pentagon as a contractor for the Marine Corps. And uh, I remember when the don't ask, don't tell policy came down and it kind of went out, not with a bang, but a whimper. It was just kind of, okay, the policy's over. But by that point, everyone was kind of serving anyway, and we all knew who the gay people were. We just didn't really ask or care anymore. Um, and then I didn't even, honestly, it was a non-event for any policy change for women in 2013. And then 2015 was the big one, most notably because the Marine Corps, it was the one service that asked for an exception to the policy for infantry. Um, but in 2015, the writing was on the wall. We knew what was going to happen. It was just a matter of time. And again, the policy catching up to what was going on in the real world. I'm curious what Maria thinks about that, but that's how I interpreted those events in those years. I had a different uh, perspective just because I was a battalion commander at 4th Recruit Training Battalion. But prior to that, I was also a company commander, series commander there. At the time I was at Paris Island, being gay was a big, um, was a big issue that the Marine Corps was not lenient towards at all. Um, they didn't even want to conduct investigations if someone was implemented or they thought they were due to a year where they did find someone, but the repercussions ended up becoming a spider web because they found someone and then they tried to replace that individual, but that individual ended up being involved as well. So it became a spider web of women of like, oh my God, we, it's this many individuals and how do we replace somebody because it's getting hard to get uh, to identify and figure that out. When they finally realized that Paris Island, it wasn't worth the effect based on what they needed for personnel. So personnel became more important than the cause of trying to find someone that was gay in their in their minds. Um, I think uh, initially uh, the thing that I thought was interesting and uh, did not uh, think the Marine Corps held their part to was if someone was gay and they were dating a subordinate. Uh, I think that's where the issue really came in um, more than it was whether you were gay or not. I don't I don't think that was the issue. I think it was more like they felt that it was such a small community that they didn't have enough people to kind of associate with and be part of a group with. So I think that's where the issue came in. But I think once the thing was once the the ban was lifted, it became more prevalent of like, okay, you can't do that anymore. Um, and let's make sure that it's fair across the board. And I think that that became a little bit more at peace with understanding that there's a fairness now that you there just like you have um, a, a straight person can't date beneath them. If you're gay, you can't date beneath you as well. And it became a little bit easier to control. I think that's where it should be with um, managing personnel of understanding that superiors have some kind of responsibility and not showing favoritism to someone beneath them. Uh, but otherwise, just like MJ said that um, once the ban was lifted, no one cared. I mean, I don't care if you were gay or not. I mean, you're filling a job as long as you do the job. And you know, you had some that were very pro- proficient at their jobs. I mean, um, so I don't think it had an impact. And actually also lifting the ban on exclusion, um, I think it going away had no impact on anybody because they were already doing it. 
Right, right. It was like almost just paperwork at a certain point. And then you had um, less, like politicians had less papers to get upset about. Well, um, I think it, it also helped commanders because then it, it gave them the opportunity to really plan and also educate uh, those that they needed to employ and embed within the operations that they wanted to do. So I think it was beneficial more in that standpoint of be, being able to create um, training uh, spaces and uh, creating policies that would also assist those that they wanted to embed that weren't authorized to be there. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. That's a really good point. Um, before we lose you both, I wanted to just, um, and, and this has been really marvelous. You've really given us, I think this is uh, some history because when, uh, again, when my colleague and I were making lioness in, um, about the women who were in, the army women in Ramadi in 2003, 2004, who ended up going out with the two, four Marines. At that time, we had always heard that there were women in Afghanistan, Marines, who were doing these searches as well, who were performing a kind of a parallel, like the same activity, um, the same missions, um, but it just wasn't really recognized. Um, and now I'm finally talking to someone who did. So I'm, this is a big moment for me. For, before we end the program though, I just wanted to reiterate, and Sean, you can cut out if I've repeated myself because I always repeat myself. Um, but part of, the, uh, part of the goal of this podcast uh, and with the Veterans Breakfast Club was because of the Special Ops Lioness, which is Paramount's television program, which is um, called Lioness. And I think for a lot of Marine women and uh, Army women who served in those programs or in FETs and sort of that, that whole through line of, uh, of, of that program, you know, felt like the actual television program had nothing to do with the kinds of things that they did during their service. And so we created this podcast to counter it by offering women a platform or people who worked with them to present the actual histories that went on, which you guys did fantastically. Um, but I wanted to just open it up for um, some discussion of the show itself. Now, I don't know if you've seen any of the episodes, uh, Maria, but I know you have, MJ, and I wanted to hear your thoughts. Um, yes, I watched the first couple episodes. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a Hollywood show, right? It's exciting. That's the kind of stuff that sells. Let's make these tough women... You know, let's make them spies and assassins, both of which are not what the military does. That's against our policy. Um, I cannot speak to what the CIA does, um, but in the military, we follow the Geneva Convention. And, you know, if he wants to make a move, make a show like that, you know, you know, more power to him. I don't know that the military, you know, it's, it's not what we did. It's not what Maria did. It, it doesn't represent who we are, in my opinion. And he probably should have just called it something else. If he wants to make a story like that, extrapolate out, you know, what could have happened or what he imagines might have happened or what women could be doing. It's all Hollywood. It's all 
mostly made up. It's mostly fantasy. But to call it lioness creates a confusion with what our service members really did. Obviously, it causes confusion with the wonderful documentary that you made. Um, so for me, that's where the problem lies. Um, I, you know, I have so many problems with the show and what it portrays and how it's so unrealistic. But that might be, you know, better for another venue. But there's many issues I have with it. I agree somewhat with MJ because we are not the CIA. However, um, I have been in plenty of positions where I was gathering information um, and I was providing it back to my intel officer um, to include when I went to different embassies, um, I am gathering information and I'm providing it back. Um, I know when um, I was uh, the uh, Caribbean engineer in Southcom, I was, um, also providing information back. Um, and we had some, some soft forces with us that went to certain islands with us and we were gathering information. We're not doing like uh, MJ is saying, we're not going out there and doing like CIA stuff and all those things. We're just gathering intel information about the country and how that is used, it's not up to us. We're just, you know, who's in charge, what's the dynamics and those things are used in intel uh, for future information. But other than gathering information and what's going on, that is normally, you know, what's, you know, that's why you have a debrief at the end of every operation or uh, exercise that you do. You're providing inf information back to the intelligence community and they're deciding who it goes to and how it's being used. Uh, but I'm not partaking in any uh, CIA stuff. Right. You weren't right. there to track you know, in the in the show, they take this woman who has a whole history of trauma and abuse from her rough childhood, and they throw her into this and they say, okay, not only are you going to gather that, but you're going to track these people and then you're going to go help kill them or kill them yep. yourself. And, you know, we were trying to, you know, influence the population so they would yep. go for, you know, a new government and democracy. You know, you were there to help get access to 50% of the population where there's cultural taboos about men interacting with those women. And that's what our women did. It, it was to gather information so that we could do our mission, which was bringing really, you know, peacekeeping and bringing democracy overseas. And to me, that that is absent from the show. I agree with MJ, just totally, totally agree with everything she had to say. Well, then I can uh, second that. I also agree with everything MJ had to say. And um, just in the context of doing the show, I mean, again, part of the, um, for me, because our documentary is called Lioness. And I remember um, when uh, I had some friends who were in Times Square and they were showing the trailer for this television series. And like, and it was up on one of those big digital screens in Times Square. And I had all these friends call me and they're like, oh, my God, Daria, your documentary was turned into a television series. And I was like, no, it wasn't. And it's like, but it's up there, Lioness. And I was like, oh, my God. Um, and so I have been watching it. And now and Sean, you can chime in here. But mm -hmm. um, I after the fourth episode where there's either it feels like um, there's a lot of really uh, some degree of either torture torture or uh, 
uh, you know, kind of uh, sexual violence um, in every episode, that it seems like perhaps it's a show that's sort of, while it's putting women in, you know, in a television show, oh, they're having an action show, a spy show, which frankly, you know, I support if, if women actresses can, you know, don't always have to play the girlfriends or, you know, the ex-wives or whatever it is, and they can take on, you know, Jack Ryan type of shows, good for those actresses, and I would support that. But this doesn't seem like it's rising to that level. And, um, and that's disappointing. Yeah. I would agree. I, I think I've said uh, along the, uh, the last couple episodes that I've been enjoying the series. I think this episode for me took a dip. Um, I felt like we're not getting near enough with Cruz. I think mm -hmm. she's just sort of embedded uh, with Aaliyah and kind of going through like they're on vacation at the beach and you're just getting sort of character development pieces while they're being monitored and uh, for any intel. Um, we're sort of taking steps forward with with Zoe's character, but then you know her daughter gets in a car accident, and we find out she's pregnant, and all this stuff. And I'm like, this seems all fluff to me. This seems like a vehicle for us to somehow get some level of character development out of uh, you know Dave Annabelle's character and uh, Zoe Saldana's character. And it, it didn't. I don't know. It, it it definitely hit hard. It was emotional, but I felt like ultimately, in the course of an eight episode miniseries, we didn't need to take this detour. Um, I want to get to the meat of what's going on with Cruz. Why is she embedded? What's going on? You know, we're we're playing games a little too much in episode four for me. It felt it felt very much like repositioning the board already, and we haven't really gone anywhere. And, and I would I would say to that, there's just too much traumatization um, <clears throat> of women in the show to make you, you know. It's just too much. So, yeah, they need to simplify. I'm hoping that they simplify a bit further uh, in episode five, and then you know, as we get towards the the, the end of this first season for them, um, you know, we've established I, a lot of relationships thus far. It, maybe I want more, a little more action. Maybe I want them to be uh, not reacting to things that are happening in the story, but taking action. Right. Well, it's. I think what we can all agree on, um, and what this podcast, and especially this uh, episode with Maria and MJ, has helped us do is, as every episode has done so far, is show further sort of what a fiction it is, and that it is that the real history, things, stories that you are both telling. Is really much more interesting and I would and I, I think it's, that's why it's so important to get these um, histories down so that uh, because I know that for mer many of the marine women as well as the army women who did serve as lioness soldiers and marines um, there's you know we're close enough in time so that there's still there's something sacred about the name and um, we have to make sure that the history behind it is uh, is available and understood, so it's not confused. But I want to thank you both, uh, Maria and MJ, for joining us for this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, but it was just wonderful. And I just want to offer you 
Um, if, if there's anything that you want to say that just to get out there that I haven't asked or that you feel like you want the public to know or you want in the history. I, I do have one last thing. Um, and, and yeah, what you just stated about, you know, your work making that documentary that, you know, award winning nominated documentary is, yeah, it creates a confusion in the history unless people really know, and there's so few people know a service member and, and so few are gonna know someone like Maria who did serve in those roles, that that's gonna make, take over the popular imagination or just create, a, you know, what, what really did not happen. And that's unfortunate. Um, but the other thing too, like just discussing the, the plot itself and the way the story unfolds, um, the way I look at it, you know, you said the women's story, what actually happened with the lioness and fats is more interesting. It's kind of like indie flicks versus action movies. You know, the action movies, with the exception of Barbie this summer, um, they're the ones that are the big block blockbusters. You know, it, it's the CGI, it's the violence. That's what sells, right? There's always dramas on television that feature doctors and cops and law enforcement, you know, those life and death kind of scenarios. That is what the demand is. Whereas you know, the really interesting women's roles in in movies, in Hollywood, on TV, are the ones that are more nuanced, the ones that have more character development. There's just more nuance and detail. It's not about violence or action. And to me, that's kind of a parallel with this here. What the lionesses and fets were doing was, was a more nuanced mission. It did not involve going after bad guys and killing them and, and being assassins, but that's what sells. And that just clouds what the real mission was, which if you dig into it, yes, I agree, is more interesting and more in keeping with our national policy and what we were trying to do overseas. I agree with MJ um, wholeheartedly um, that it is uh, sensation does sell, but I, I think if um, they look at the experiences that the Lioness and uh, the FET teams had in those um, situations and made a story, because it wouldn't just be about like some of the comment, it'd be also comical, but it also create this timeless uh, you know, this this image of like real life stories um, that can have a little bit sensationalism to it, but it'd be forever timeless of like, wow, check this out, that people will remember like those stories. I'm not saying comparing to Wizard of Oz, you know, everybody knows Wizard of Oz as a movie, but also look at it as something that they can create that could be timeless. It doesn't have to have all these disastrous, um, you know, these fighting images, but also some comical stuff that would create this uh, timeless situation. Well, I think that uh, I agree with MJ. I agree with you, Maria. And um, I, again, I think we can um, bring this to a close, but on behalf of the Veterans Breakfast Club, I wanna thank you both so much for giving us your time today. Um, this is important history. It'll be in the archives of the Veterans Breakfast Club. People will be able to listen to it. And I can't thank you enough for doing this with us because uh, it makes a difference and it will make a difference. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Daria and Sean, thank you so much for this opportunity. I know MJ called me. I'm, I was really excited to hear um, that you guys are doing something like this. It'd be interesting that we get this recorded for a lot of those females, like you were saying, that aren't remembered um, and are, you know, sacrificing in their life and doing these amazing things um, that you don't need to exaggerate to, to show their experience. But yeah, I, th I thank you so much for your time also and giving me this opportunity. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing with um, 
with MJ and with Maria and with the women that we've had on, there's been no exaggeration and it's been utterly fascinating. Completely. And I want to remind our audience, uh, this is the episode four. So we have three other episodes. You can go back, listen to them if you haven't already. Uh, look forward to more episodes as we continue to respond to special ops lioness, but also continue to have special guests on to speak to the real history of women uh, serving uh, and in creating the, the Linus program, the FET program. Uh, and we have more surprises in store as we continue this. Uh, you can find Linus, the origin story podcast across the podcast platforms. And you can always reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. If you have any thoughts, questions, or comments, uh, we'd love to hear them. And thank you so much for listening.